Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today, we're discussing William Stanbeck getting ready to return for the Montreal Alouettes. The possibility of the Ottawa Red Blacks making a coaching change. The Argos signing former first-round CFL draft pick Ryan Hunter. Riders head coach Craig Dickinson claiming he was misquoted by Three Down Nation. And retired receiver Andy Fantuz getting snubbed by... Pop star Justin Bieber? But first. Unreal. The Calgary Stampeders signed quarterback Jake Mayer to a two-year contract extension that will pay him over $400,000 in hard money in 2023. Given the constraints of the salary cap, it seems inevitable that Bolivai Mitchell will not be returning to the Stamps next season. The future Hall of Fame quarterback spoke to the media in Calgary on Tuesday and indicated that he has not requested a trade, though he is aware that other teams have inquired regarding his services. Should the Stamps trade Mitchell before the Wednesday, October 5th deadline? I think that our boy Ryan Ballantyne nailed his column that came out Wednesday morning, listing six reasons why the Calgary Stampeders should not trade Boldy by Mitchell until the off season. I absolutely am in agreement with Mr. Ballantyne, though it was recently brought to my attention that he has horribly misrepresented a preseason bet that him and I made regarding the Calgary Stampeders roster and record for which I have requested a retraction from Mr. Ballantyne. We'll see if he addresses that. Uh, but getting back to the matter at hand with Mitchell, with Mayer, this is a situation where the Calgary Stampeders have an embarrassment of riches, right? I think Jake Mayer is the number three quarterback in the CFL right now. Bo Levi Mitchell has had a bit of a disappointing season. That said, I still think he is a top, certainly five, six quarterback in the CFL. So if you've got two guys on your roster going into the playoffs who can play at a high level and win you games, that provides that ele- extra element of insurance that, frankly, I don't think any other team that's punched a ticket to the playoffs this season has at the moment i don't think you can look to bc and say they have one i don't think you can look to winnipeg or toronto and say oh okay if their starter goes down they're, they're going to be just fine um so for calgary to keep on to mitchell i think is key also the other element at play let's not forget that the stampeders traded nick arbuckle's rights after the 2019 season for a first round pick so if nick arbuckle was first was worth a first round pick from the ottawa red blacks Obviously, after this season, Bully by Mitchell will still be worth a first-round pick. In my mind, there is no trade package that a reasonable general manager would offer for Bully by Mitchell at this stage in the season that would make it worthwhile for the Stamps to give up that insurance. The reality is, as critical as we have been uh, of Bo at times this season and over the last couple of years, he's still a quarterback you can win a great cup with. And if you're Calgary, you don't want to give up that insurance. You point to the BC situation, just look to them to see what happens when you don't have a viable backup waiting there when your starter goes down and you can't even go out and get one. Right now, I'm not sure where a trade landing spot for Bo Levi Mitchell even would be. Potentially Saskatchewan is the place that comes to mind for me, but the package that you would have to get back would be so unreasonable. It would cripple the Raggers franchise. You just, that trade just can't be executed because right now having Bo Levi Mitchell as insurance is more important than anything else for the stamps. Totally agree. And we haven't even talked about what he is doing in terms of helping mayor off the field preparation, 
film work, experience, the knowledge that he can give to Mare as the team finishes their regular season, potentially trying to get that number two seed in a home playoff game in the West Division and make a push for the Grey Cup. There are two quarterbacks active in this league right now that have been starters and led teams to Grey Cup victories. One is Mr. Mitchell. The other, Zach Kolaris. End of list. That's it. So the experience that he has is invaluable. Yes, you have Dave Dickinson, who knows a thing or two about winning a CFL championship as well as a quarterback, but it helps when you have multiple voices in the room. John Huffnagel could sure share some knowledge as well, and that's one of the reasons why I do not think the Stamps will trade him. Also, because if you're going to trade him to, let's say, in JC's example, Saskatchewan, you're potentially helping out a West Division team. It's one thing to do that in the offseason when everything is going to be reset and changes are going to be made. But I just don't see Calgary doing it right now unless they have a lot of faith in Tommy Stevens, but he's really just been a short yardage guy for them so far. So I don't think it would be smart for Calgary to do it. I think John Huffnagel and Dave Dickinson are very smart dudes and they understand the value of having two guys. And America could just be one shot away for as good as he has been from being put on the shelf with an injury and needing Mitchell to go into games and deliver them ideally from what they want. A great cup. Well, and, and let's also talk about the divisional aspect. I think you nailed it, Doug. The last thing Calgary wants to do is help Saskatchewan. A lot of people have drawn comparisons to Winnipeg trading for Zach Kolaris back in 2019, but of course he was shipped to Winnipeg from Toronto, right? The Toronto Argonauts at that point, were a terrible team. They finished that year 4-14, four and 14, well outside of the playoff picture, and they were shipping Kolaris right ha- halfway across the country to the West Division. So uh, this, this, to me, is a different scenario. The only way that I could see Mitchell realistically being traded is if it is to the East Division, and the only way that's going to happen is if all of a sudden Montreal loses Trevor Harris and, and they decide, okay, we can't roll with Dominic Davis, um, or, or potentially maybe you know something happens to, to McLeod Bethel-Thompson in Toronto, and all of a sudden, they're willing to to sell the farm, right, to try to save this season. And that's if they don't want to go with Chad Kelly. So to me, the divisional aspect is certainly a play. And, and absolutely, I think Mitchell deserves credit. Dave Dickinson spoke very highly of him on Tuesday um, in terms of what he has done, right? Because a lot of players, when they lose their starting spot, they become sour. They become angry. They stop putting in the work. And obviously, Mitchell has not become a distraction in Calgary. He's still showing up early, preparing to play. Valentine wrote in his column. He's still, you know, breaking things down at the end of games, handing out game balls after wins. Uh, so clearly, though he's not on the field, Mr. Mitchell is playing a role in the Calgary Stampeders success. Well, I don't disagree with either of your points, but for all intents and purposes, the Saskatchewan Roughriders are an East Division team right now. They're not catching the Calgary Stampeders in the West Division. So I think that takes a little <laughs> bit of the wind out of your sails in terms of the divisional argument. Well, let's, let, let's see. Saskatchewan yeah, hasn't let's... hasn't clinched anything yet. We'll see. And guys, okay, let's get into multiple things here. First of all, with the Rough Riders and the playoffs, okay? I don't see another win for the Riders on their schedule right now. The only way that I potentially Ooh. see an easy one is if Calgary locks up either two or three and they can't move it all in one of those back-to-back games that they have with Saskatchewan at the end of the season. And I look at Edmonton and I say, they could win three of those last four and Winnipeg could be home and cooled out in one of those other games. And they gave the Blue Bombers fits, Hodge. You wrote about it when they went to Commonwealth Stadium earlier this season. So 
I still see this scenario where it's not a lock that Saskatchewan gets in and Edmonton can overtake them. And then, oh, by the way, you got to look at the East Division. I just think the East Division teams, and I haven't done the math on this, but play each other too many times down the stretch. So I think it's really Edmonton that is the main competitor for Saskatchewan. The Riders got to find a way to get a win. I don't necessarily see that happening. And whether or not the Riders make the playoffs, I don't see them going very far. Barring Cody Fajardo leading this team to a great cup and depending who is running the riders next year and making the decisions from the GM, the head coach positions, because the hot seat has really heated up there in Regina on Jeremy O'Day and Craig Dickinson. Then the rough riders have to at least consider either potentially trading for the rights to Mr. Bo Levi Mitchell or signing him as a free agent to a lucrative contract. There was some interest when he was nearly a free agent in 2019 and I think if you have a guy that is one of only two quarterbacks to lead a team to a great cup as a starter currently active in the CFL right now you gotta look at that hard and if you're Mitchell he's a smart dude he understands what he could become in terms of a legend in Saskatchewan if he went there led the riders to a great cup and the money that he could make off the field long after his career is over if he made the heel turn to go play for the Rough Riders. The other thing I think worth noting is that the trade deadline is one week from today. As of the recording of this podcast, the deadline is Wednesday, October 5th. And so if you're the Calgary Stampeders, if there's any chance of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders making the playoffs in the West Division, which there still is, I don't see a trade happening. But you are right, JC, looking at the tea leaves. It's, it's the, the odds of Saskatchewan being in the East Division come to the playoffs are very, very high. Mr. Dunk, you wrote a story following Saskatchewan's Week 15 loss to Edmonton in which you quoted Riders head coach Craig Dickinson as saying, quote, I'm just going to be honest. We're not very good. That's an obvious statement, but we weren't that good even at 4-1. and one. We just got a little bit of jump on people, I felt. We haven't played up to our abilities, close quote. Dickinson spoke to the media in Regina on Monday and accused Three Down Nation of not quoting him accurately. So let's roll the clip, shall we? But for the most part, same group that started the year four and one. But we didn't play anybody at the beginning of the year. And, and I'm just going to be honest. We're not very good. And that's an obvious statement here. But we weren't that good even at four and one. We just we just got a little bit of a jump on people, I felt. Um, we haven't played up to our abilities. We haven't played up to our potential. And we got to do a better job across the board, all three phases. That was a recording of Dickinson's postgame comments from September, September 16th which you can watch in full on the writer's website. Dunk, what do you make of Dickinson's accusation? I don't like it, to be quite honest, because in journalism, what we hold near and dear and the most paramount thing is being able to disseminate information properly and also being right. That has been a pillar of my reporting in the time that I've been doing CFL reporting and I don't like it because you go back and you just played the recording and we heard what he said. It's much different to be inferring something, excuse me, than to actually say it. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds about this because I think the writers have much bigger issues than worrying about potentially being misquoted. But Mr. Dickinson was not misquoted whatsoever. I can understand that. The writers or Dickinson might feel like there was some context there that was left out. 
But you go through that entire quote, and he essentially said multiple times that throughout the season, his team has not been very good. So I don't think it makes difference whether he was talking about right now or anything else. And the main issue there is players either heard or read about it, specifically the reading part on 3downnation.com or on our Instagram feed at 3downnation or on Twitter at 3downnation. So in my mind, that's what caused the big issue for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And I don't like an unfair accusation being leveled at us when we are extremely diligent with literally every word that is put out on our publication. And that's why I think it's important to to address this. Uh, we do have the full video clip of Dickinson's comments up on our Twitter account. However, we live in a post-Trump world where anybody who wants to can just wave their hand away and say, oh, the media is making things up. I never said that. And I'm not suggesting that Craig Dickinson is anything like Donald Trump in his day-to-day life, in his day-to-day world, whatever, nor is a football story as important as the dealings of an entire country. That being said, we have been receiving tweets ever since Dickinson made this accusation from people who are still of the belief that we have misquoted or misrepresented what he said. And it's clear that Dickinson regrets what he said. It's clear that he wishes that he had said it in different words. However, he not only said in very plain terms that his team is not very good, he also said they haven't been good all year. He said that in his quote verbatim. He said, quote, we weren't that good even at four and one. We just got a little bit of a jump on people. I felt close quote. He also said, quote, that's an obvious statement, close quote. So if he is saying we're not good, we haven't been good all year, and that's obvious, I find it extremely disturbing that he would then point to our publication as somehow misquoting him regarding that. And by the way, boys, every word that Craig Dickinson said after that game on September 16th was accurate. His team has not been very good this year. They haven't been bad, but they're 6-8. and eight. They've lost five straight at home, and they've lost seven of their last nine. So, Mr. Dickinson, if you would like to choose your words differently in the future, that is your prerogative. However, when we quote you accurately, please do not publicly accuse us of misquoting you. This was, in my mind, an attempted deflection from Dickinson, which is really unfortunate because it was unfounded. But it points to, in my mind, a bigger issue within the Saskatchewan Rough Riders right now. And that is their locker room. And that's not all Dickinson's fault. He made these comments trying to deflect blame onto us for putting these quotes out of context or not including the full quote, which was both inaccurate. We quoted him correctly. He made those comments because players were responding to the things he said and getting their backup about it criticizing their coach, pushing back against the fact that he said they're not very good. And in my mind, you can't have a winning football team if you're six and eight and your players can't accept the fact that they're not very good, right? If they don't have the desire to get better, if they don't hear comments like that from their coach and say, okay, this has to change. We need to improve so we can go in front of the media and say we're a good football team and say we're a contender, which the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are not right now. If they don't have that internal drive, 
then there's nothing you can do. There's nothing a head coach can do to solve that problem. That's an issue with the players and the locker room that's been assembled. That goes right up to the top with general manager Jeremy O'Day. And we've seen it consistently with the riders throughout this year, whether it's been the Garrett Marino incidents, whether it's been Jake Dulagala, uh, drunk driving, whether it's been Duke Williams in street clothes, getting a penalty that helps cost his team a victory. These things are all unacceptable. And it points to the fact that the riders have not assembled the correct core of players with the correct mentality to go out there and win football games. And to me, as much as we want to harp on Craig Dickinson for trying to deflect blame onto us, this is a systemic problem within the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and this is just another symptom of it. There needs to be a large amount, if not all of it, in terms of the blame for the Rough Riders' poor season to this point, six and eight, and Hodge laid it out, losing five in a row at home, losing seven of their last nine at the feet of Jeremy O'Day because he did next to nothing to upgrade the offensive line that everyone and their dad, mother, brother, sister, and cousin knew needed to be upgraded in the offseason. That did not happen. And also the fact that he has been hiding from some of the, quote, adversity that this team has been dealing with. At the end of the day, Mr. O'Day has the ability to release Garrett Marino. He is the final decision maker on the football side of that organization. At the end of the day, Mr. O'Day has the final decision to release Jake Dolagala after he gets arrested for impaired driving. At the end of the day, Mr. O'Day has the final say to be able to release Duke Williams after he picks up a freaking helmet and throws it at another player. Okay? So let's... Get the blame game right here. And I actually have some sympathy because Mr. Dickinson has unfairly been put out front and had to take so many bullets that it doesn't matter what type of Kevlar vest he has on that eventually it's going to penetrate through and it's going to cost him his job because the other decision makers and Craig Reynolds, the president, should be included in this too. And the fans have lit him up on the phone lines post game, especially after the Elks loss as well, because he is the ultimate decision maker for the entire organization that reports to the board. Of course, he shouldn't be without blame either, but it's been unfair that Dickinson has been the guy time and time again to go in front of the media when other people are around, namely Mr. O'Day, who's on all of the road trips with the team as well. And it's Dickinson that has to answer for all of the nonsense that Saskatchewan has allowed. And I say allowed because it took until a not even final straw, but more than final straw to release Garrett Marino. Duke Williams is still on the team. I understand there are some people in there that feel like he brings leadership, but he hasn't played up to his contract of $250,000. If anything, he's been a distraction, and JCU mentioned it. That penalty on the sideline caused Dickinson to say, we're not going to have injured guys there anymore. So ultimately, it is unfair to Craig Dickinson that he has had to deal with all of this heat Every single situation when there are other major decision makers in the organization that have either allowed guys to stay on the team too long or have not helped out with the discipline issues that have plagued this team and cost them a number of wins this season. 
I, I think that you're doing a good job of bringing balance to the conversation. And, and I, I will say this. I think Craig Dickinson is a good coach. I also think that he is one of the genuinely good people in this league. I think Craig Dickinson is a genuinely nice person, an affable person. Um, I do also think that the pressure has gotten to him a little bit this season. And at the end of the day, as much as yes, there are other key decision makers in Ryderville who could stand up and take some of those bullets who are not doing so. They're hiding in their offices, right? With their head under the desk, letting other people deal with that. That is generally how things have gone historically in this league. There's not a lot of GMs in this league who talk to the media on any type of regular basis. The only two that come to mind are Chris Jones and Danny Machocha. Oh, oh, that's right. They're also the head coaches of their football team. And so Craig Dickinson, I agree, has been at times probably too much of the blame or received too much of the blame in Ryderville. But that said, he is the head coach of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in a season where they are hosting the Grey Cup. If this season didn't go well, he had to be prepared for this. There's no greater job when times are good than being the head coach of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. There's no worse job when times are bad than being the head coach of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I will say there is one job that I think would uh, would compete with head coach for that, and that's the quarterback. Like, I do think we would be remiss if we didn't bring up Kogi Fajardo in an episode of the Three Down Nation podcast because I think this goes into the same sort of deal. He's another guy who gets stick, stuck up there at the podium every week and takes deserving flack just as Dickinson has but indicates that this whole team hasn't been prepared for the adversity and the pressure that they would face this year in this home Grey Cup year. Still trying to deflect blame away. Talk about the fans not being fully behind the team. Talk about the fact he's in a contract year and that's added pressure. Both Craig Dickinson and Cody Fajardo need to focus on the issue at hand. They need to focus on their own responsibility and there needs to be changes going forward in Ryderville, in my estimation. Definitely. And the fact that three down nation is even on the tongue of anyone in that organization shows you that the focus is elsewhere. Listen, one thing I'll add as well for clarity, if in the future we make an error, we will let you know that we made the error. We do not need anybody To point that out on our behalf, we will correct the error. We've been in this game for seven and a half years. We have issued one retraction. We will be the ones. We don't need anybody else to hold us accountable. Yeah, I mean, that retraction has a whole other story behind it anyway, so we're not going to get into today, but well said, Hodge. I think that's enough said on this topic. We can move on, JC. William Stanback is back practicing with the Montreal Alouettes after suffering a broken ankle in week one. Who is more likely to represent the East Division in the Grey Cup this year, Toronto or Montreal? Ooh, stand back, back. That offense could add another whole dimension. And imagine if you're Trevor Harris right now, thinking about what it could be like to have stand back in the backfield and teams loading up to stack the run. You're getting one on one situations with Geno Lewis and Jake Weineke. Touchdown Jake might reappear when stand back is back on the field for the Montreal Alouettes. And I think that's a legitimate question, JC. The Argos have been sneakily consistent in the East Divisions. Well, East Division, excuse me. Well, 
Ottawa and Hamilton kind of self-implode a little bit, except for that flash of brilliance from Dane Evans against Winnipeg. And there's a point to be made here, but I think Toronto has been solid. They have a better offensive line. In my mind, Jagger Davis just got healthy, and we've seen what a beast he can be come playoff time. He knows a thing or two. He's been to how many straight great cups? It's like three or four or something. I think crazy. it's four. I think he's going for his fifth in a row. So I'll take Toronto for the time being until I see what this offense looks like in Montreal with Sandback back on the field. I'm going to take the Argonauts, and that's no disrespect to the Alouettes, who I do agree are going to become more dynamic after William Stanback is back in the lineup. I'm taking the Argonauts because as, you know, somewhat of a redheaded stepchild of this league who don't often get the media attention that other teams do. I think the Ro- or the the Argos, there's a Freudian slip, a team who does get all the attention in the world. The Argonauts are sometimes forgotten, and the reality is they've won four straight games. They have not played a lot of elite teams this year. They only played Winnipeg once. They've only played uh, Calgary once this season. Uh, they only played the the Nathan Rourke-led BC Lions once. So the strength of schedule, I think, comes comes into play here. But this team is 8-5, and five, right? They're, they're in Calgary this week at McMahon Stadium. Wouldn't that be a statement game for the, for the Argos to come back and win that game? And they'll be especially motivated. You know why, boys? Because 98% of the people in that organization used to be in Calgary. That stat is slightly made up, admittedly, but it, it's almost true. Virtually the entire coaching staff and like half the roster used to be in Cowtown. And one other thing I'll say is a name that nobody's mentioned in over a month now, Andrew Harris. A.J. Olette has made everybody forget all about the future Hall of Fame running back who, when he went down, right, that was, that was considered not a death blow to the Argos, but that was considered a big blow. A.J. Olette has been, for my money, the best receiving back in the CFL this year, catching passes out of the backfield, and he has absolutely done a, a great job of replacing Harris in that offense. Sneakily, I think these are actually two teams that are well-designed for CFL playoff football. They both have physical running backs. If Stanback is back, obviously he takes the cake. He's the best running back in the CFL, bar none. But even the backups in Montreal, Jeshurun Antwi and and Walter Fletcher, have performed admirably. And then I'm really high on A.J. Ouellette. I'm glad you brought him up, Hodge, because I've been impressed with his play as well. I think these are two offensive lines that maybe are not the most dynamic in terms of their athleticism, but if they start pushing people downhill and it's bad weather football, both of them can be competitive. I will say this though, the Toronto Argonauts, despite the fact that they are leading the East division, I'm consistently left wanting more when I watch them play, right? It seems like this is a team that should be better than they are. And this is probably not the best week that for us to be talking about that, considering how they pounded the snot out of the Ottawa Red Blacks. And that was one of their most dominant wins of the season. But even then the offense was sort of meh the whole game. And to me, that will always go back to McLeod Bethel Thompson being a perfectly competent quarterback and nothing more than that. I like Trevor Harris better. I think his high-end ceiling is higher than McLeod Bethel Thompson. And so if it were me, I'd bet on the Montreal Alouettes representing the East Division in the Grey Cup. A couple things there. First of all, Kadeem Carey has his hand up, JC. Okay. I think he would get 
some votes for best running back in the league. Do you want to retort to that? No, I still prefer Stanback. I'd rather block for William Stanback than Kadeem Carey. Wow. Okay. Another player that will dislike you, but that's okay. That's what happens. (laughs) And you said East Division and didn't even mention the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Is that a passive aggressive shot just not to mention them? It's not passive aggressive, but maybe it is a shot. I don't think the crossover team will get to the Grey Cup. Uh, whether it, whether whether it's Saskatchewan or or Edmonton, I don't believe that the crossover team will be able to win. Two and also, games. and and for the record, the question was between Toronto and Montreal, who is more likely to go to the Grey Cup representing the East? So, <laughs> where I can see you trying to turn the conversation back, Mister Doug, but not on my watch. <laughs> I'm just trying to stir the pot. I think Craig Dickinson might take issue with your 98% there number, Hodge, and we would be okay with that, but it was clearly made up. Well, when when your head coach and your offensive coordinator and your defensive coordinator and most of your receiving core and most of your defensive line, right, all used to play, Winston McManus, your best, arguably best player, period, who's been sensational for them at weak side linebacker, all used to play in Calgary. Royce Mechie, uh, Deshaun Amos, right? Like the list goes on and on and on. Even Ja'Garrett Davis. Yeah, he had a stint in Hamilton, but he's a former Calgary Stampeder as well. Um, to me, I, I'm very excited for this game. To me, this is the game of the week to watch this week because I think Toronto, as discussed, has been uh, a bit of a, you know, succeeded somewhat because of their 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 schedule. Well, guess what? The Stampeders are still hoping to clinch second place in that West Division. They're going to bring their A game. Jake Mayer is playing at a very high level. This is an opportunity for the Argos to put an exclamation point on their season and prove they're not just good for an East team. They're good for the CFL. Time to get to that team who is wiping the snot bubbles away after last week. The Red Blacks got absolutely smoked in week 16, turning the ball over. Now, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times in a 45-15 loss to the Argos at three and 10. The team is still somehow mathematically eligible to make the playoffs. Well, we know why. It's the East Division. Though they'll likely need to win all five of their remaining games in order to do so. Is it time for Ottawa to make a coaching change? Well, I I think that this week was not the right time to make a coaching change simply because of the logistics involved. The, The Ottawa Red Blacks lost to Toronto This past Saturday, they play Friday in BC. If you're flying across the country on five days rest, adding a coaching change to that is probably not a wise move. This team does not have another bye week this year. However, they do have a long break between this upcoming game against BC and the following game, the Thanksgiving Monday game against Montreal on October 10th. To me, if the Red Blacks are going to make a coaching change, that should be when they make it. Um, That being said... I mean, this is a team that is out of playoff contention. All uh, Not mathematically, dunk you laid it out. Technically, they could still make it. But the odds of that occurring, right, are, are shockingly low. Um, this is also a team that has Paul Apolise, their head coach, wearing a ton of hats in that organization. He is not only the head coach, he's the offensive coordinator, and he is highly involved with their quarterbacks as well, though he does not carry that quarterback's coach title. Um, So if you're going to move on from him, you are blowing up your season. And I think to a large extent at this point, it would merely be a PR move to sell some extra tickets. 
Also worth noting that the Red Blacks do not play at home again until October 14th in that Thanksgiving rematch. And so should the Red Blacks make a coaching change? I think for 2023, they absolutely should. Um, all credit to Paul Apolise for being an amazing offensive coordinator. Obviously, his head coaching stint in Ottawa has not worked out for the better. Uh, but that said, for the logistical reasons involved, I would not be surprised if the Red Blacks kept Lapolice through the end of the year. I think you hit the nail right on the head when you talked about some of the logistical problems, specifically on the coaching side, in terms of the amount of hats that Paul Lapolice is wearing. There are people in our nation who are upset that a move hasn't been made already to move on from Paul Lapolice, and perhaps rightfully so. But the question you have to ask yourself and the reason why the organization hasn't made a move is, okay, well, maybe Bob Dice can step up or Mike Benavides can step up as interim head coach. But who's calling your plays offensively? Because they've got no one who has experience doing so in the organization right now. That would leave a tremendous void and you're not in a situation where you can bring someone in. So to me, that's the biggest reason why Paul Apolise has continued to be with the Ottawa Red Blacks through all these struggles. Like at this point, to me, it doesn't matter. And you look at the dwindling numbers that are coming out to watch games in Ottawa, which since the, the expansion, the return to the nation's capital has been one of the best places to watch a CFL football game, has been one of the best fan bases, a packed stadium, a tremendous atmosphere, the one you hold up as a model for all other franchises to follow in terms of engaging a young fan base and bringing the energy, well, that is disappearing, and it's because of the performance of the Ottawa Red Blacks in general, but especially at home, and Paul Lapolis over the last two seasons bears responsibility for that because his offense while he's been head coach, has not been up to the standard he's set in Winnipeg. It has not been good enough, and it's not been exciting. They cannot win games consistently with him calling plays right now and managing the team, and a move has to be made quickly at this point to send a message to the fan base that you actually care, that they should be renewing for next season because there will be changes made. And if you don't do that, I fear what can happen in Ottawa because we've seen it before. The reality is Paul Epelis is a dead man walking. He will not be the head coach of the Ottawa Red Blacks in the 2023 season. And for some of the reasons you guys laid out, it is difficult for them to make the move now. Though you could see a scenario and wouldn't be ideal where Bobby Dice takes over as the interim head coach and potentially Will Arndt calls the plays based on the offense that has already been installed by La Police. I don't necessarily think it's an issue with him in terms of not knowing offensive football, but it's much different when you're the head coach and you are the guy in terms of the leader. Just look at Mike O'Shea, for example, and Paul Apolise and the way that O'Shea commands respect when he walks in a room compared to La Police. And I'm talking about feedback from the players in the locker room. That's no shot at Lapolis. He can be an offensive coordinator and a great one. We've seen that in the past, and I think he can do that in the future in this league. But his head coaching track record would show otherwise in terms of a leader of men. So it would be difficult, but I think both of you guys alluded to this as well, that 
the Red Blacks are getting dangerously close to alienating their fans. And sometimes you don't want to make a move just to make one. But in reality, you at least, I think, have to show this is unacceptable. And you want to give the fans, as JC said, some reason to renew their season's tickets, even if that's for the potential boost in energy that Bob Dice could provide as a head coach and a change and moving on from La Police. And yes, Will Arn has never called plays in this league, but I'm sure there's a way to get it done. Mr. Dice also has some experience on the offensive side as well. So I'm sure you can figure something out there, but it has to be done. It's not ideal. La Police was great on TSN. He's a great offensive mind, but it just hasn't worked out as a head coach in Ottawa. Two, two points I'll make in addition to the ones we've already covered. One, which is, I suppose, somewhat of a counter-argument against what I've already said. I have had some people point out to me, well, yeah, there might be some growing pains handing the offense over to, to Will Arndt, but can it really get worse? Like, can it, can it really get worse than what we saw on display this past week against the Argonauts? That offense was atrocious. And the second one is a cautionary tale to future head coaches in this league We've 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 praised Paul Apelice heavily for his work as an offensive coordinator in this league, which I think is fair and warranted. But, you know, for example, Dunk, you mentioned Mike O'Shea. Nobody knows special teams three down football better than Mike O'Shea, but he is not his own special teams coordinator. Paul Boudreaux is the special teams coordinator of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and does great work. Right. And we've seen some head coaches in this league try to wear multiple hats. You know, uh, uh, for example, out in BC, Rick Campbell used to used to be in name at least the defensive coordinator. He relinquished that title in, in Calgary for many years. We saw Dave Dickinson as his own head coach or as his own offensive coordinator. He relinquished that title. The less you can do, the more you can focus on what you are supposed to be doing at any given moment. And I think that helps breed success within it, within it, with any franchise. It's important to to limit the responsibilities and perform it to the best of your abilities rather than trying to wear three hats. Cause guess what? Inevitably one of those hats is going to hit the ground. It's now time for Hodges heritage moment on this day in 1975, Edmonton trailed Calgary by a score of 27, pardon me, 29 two with less than one minute remaining before halftime. Edmonton would go on to win the game 37, 36 completing what was then the largest comeback in CFL history. This record was matched in 1994 when Winnipeg defeated Hamilton by a score of 46-44 after trailing 41-14 midway through the third quarter. Have either of you boys ever seen a team come back from a 27-point deficit? I've been part of a University of Guelph team that came back from, I believe it was 24 nothing down in an OUA semifinal against Wilfrid Laurier University. I can remember standing on the sidelines with then head coach Kyle Walters, and we were adding it up going, okay, 24, carry the numbers. We're going to lose 96 nothing. We actually said that to ourselves on the <laughs> sideline. Lo and behold, Jed Gardner, who was drafted mid-round pick by the Toronto Argonauts, was a receiver for us, returned to miss field goal, turned the thing upside down on its head. We won going away and hosted the Yates Cup the next week. So it wasn't quite 27. It hadn't been in many of those situations as it was, but we came back from 24 down. I could tell you why. Any team I've ever been on that's been down 27 points usually allows 30 in the second half. that is also my experience jc i can tell you actually i've never said this on the podcast but when i was growing up in winnipeg um jordan reeves now of the edmonton elks 
is one year older than myself. And so every second year growing up playing Pee Wee in Winnipeg, we would have to face his Crescentwood Grizzlies, who would absolutely mop the bloody floor with us as he ran for 600 yards and 17 touchdowns. And I would sit on the bench and, uh, and be sad. Mind you, my dad loved those games because Jordan's father, Willard Reeves, former CFL MOP, would be there and love talking to Bomber fans. Be careful. Craig Dickinson might call you out for wrong stats there, Hodge, on Mr. Reeves. <laughs> I'll have to go back and check my diary. Ignore the tear stains from when I was 12, getting destroyed by future BU Bobcat and CFL defensive lineman, special teamer, linebacker, receiver, Jordan Reeves. Obviously. Yes, those stats were exaggerated. It is time. Former Alouettes and Riders fullback Spencer Moore officially has retired from the CFL. How will you remember his career? I think of Spencer Moore as doing the dirty work well. Unglamorous position, but an important one still to this day. Curtis Rourke, younger brother of CFL star Nathan Rourke, set a new single-game passing record at Ohio when he threw for 537 yards in a 59-52 shootout win over Fordham. Could Curtis be even better than his brother? I'm not ready to say that yet. I think Nathan Rourke's a pretty special player, but I will say this. Curtis is further ahead in his development as a passer at this stage in his career than Nathan was at that stage. Nathan only threw for two 300-yard games in his entire college career. Curtis has thrown for two this season, three total. We have not seen the best from him yet. Andy Fantuz revealed on Simone Lawrence's new podcast that he was snubbed by Justin Bieber in an attempt to get the pop star to wear his jersey at the 100th Grey Cup. Have you ever gotten snubbed by the Beebs? No, but I wish I even had the chance to be snubbed by the Beebs. That would be epic. You could at least tell the story like Fantuz did. The Argonauts signed former CFL first-round draft pick Ryan Hunter following a four-year stint in the NFL, which included a Super Bowl ring with the Kansas City Chiefs. What are your expectations for him in Toronto? I mean, Ryan Hunter was extremely well-viewed coming out of Bowling Green. That's the last offensive lineman who came to the CFL after four years in the NFL is Brett Boyko, who busted not only in BC, but also Saskatchewan. So I'm interested to see if Hunter can shake that trend. Former CFL quarterback Ken Dorsey, now the offensive coordinator for the Buffalo Bills, smashed a tablet following his team's loss to the Miami Dolphins. Have you ever smashed a tablet? No, I have not. And that wasn't just smashing a tablet. That was a hissy fit like a toddler. I hate it when coaches do that. The Raggers suspended third-string quarterback Jake Delagala after he was arrested and charged with impaired driving in Regina during the team's recent bye week. Is the one-game suspension enough? I mean, I guess it is if you compare it to Kenny Lawler. I believe that was the same discipline handed down to him in Winnipeg. But in a season filled with adversity, I think something like that could have been called for a release to show that the organization means business and they need to put all of this sideshow stuff aside. Former CFL All-Star center Dan Clark could be back this week from a broken leg. Will he help shore up Saskatchewan's offensive line? I think he will. Dan Clark is a talented veteran. He is grizzly. He is physical. There's little finesse in what he does, but there are a few players I would less like to have to go up against than Dan Clark. 
Award-winning left tackle Derek Dennis is out for the rest of the season with a cracked fibula. How big of a loss is that for the Calgary Stampeders? It's a pretty big loss. Now, I think there's some depth that the Stampeders can lean on. I like the two tackles they've got on their practice roster. Hugh Thornton was a former fourth-round NFL draft pick, and Josh Coker has looked very good in limited action, so they should be okay. But really unfortunate to see Dennis go down. He was the odds-on favorite to win most outstanding offensive lineman he probably won't receive the award now and that is a tremendous shame riders running back frankie hickson and lions receiver brian burnham are both expected to end up on the six game injured list this week which player is a bigger loss for their team hickson has looked great as a rookie but it's burnham without question for what he means to that offense and Vernon Adams Jr. there running the show at quarterback. He's a dude that can make acrobatic catches time and time again, has done it, and I think that's a major loss for the Lions. The Manitoba Bisons are back in the U Sports Top 10 football rankings after demolishing the University of Calgary, but do they actually belong on the list? Yes, I think they do. I know the, I know the Bisons struggled coming out of the gate, but as long as they keep running that football, this team, I think, can win games late into the fall. Ken Keith said the Riders experienced racism in Regina and believes his response to that racism is the reason he has not been allowed to officially retire as a member of the team. What do you make of that? I think it's highly unfortunate that any player would experience racial slurs or any sort of racism and discrimination while playing in a CFL city. I'm saddened to hear that Kenton Keith experienced that, and I think it adds important context to some of the discussion around potential off-the-field issues he had while in Regina, including his arrest for assault. It seems to stem from incidents of this nature, and, and I think that's important for fans to remember and reflect on as they look at their own behavior in regards to CFL players. The Arizona Cardinals are promoting Canadian linebacker Jesse Lucetta to the team's active roster. Are you excited for his regular season debut? Yeah, man, I'm hyped up. Lucetta is one of those dudes that is a football player and not a tester. So I think he can make an impact with the Cardinals when he steps between those white lines. The Riders and Bombers are wearing orange jerseys during warm-ups of their game on Friday night and will auction them off afterward with proceeds going to Indigenous initiatives. Is that a prudent move? Absolutely. This is the type of leadership that we need from our professional sports teams when it comes to an important initiative such as this with the National Day of Truth and, Re Truth and Reconciliation coming up on Friday. Finally, on a somber note, former CFL linebacker Jonathan Beaulieu-Richard passed away at the age of 33 this past week due to cancer. Three Down Nation would like to extend its sincerest condolences to his family and his friends at this difficult time. We thank you for listening as always. We'll see you next Wednesday for another episode. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.